Hello, and welcome to Bangers, the video game podcast where we talk about games in which you shoot things. Good games, bad games, mad games. This week, we go under the sea, and we play Bioshock. Bioshock MD. Dr. Bioshock. Bioshock Minerva's Den. James, did you know that seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake? Well, no, because I, I rarely live at the bottom of the sea. I mainly live on land. Do you dream about going up there? Well, that's a big mistake. Are you doing the Disney? Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such a wonderful thing surround you. What more is you looking for? Under the sea. Under the sea. Da da da. Under the sea. It's Bioshock. We're doing a Bioshock. It's a bit of a weird Bioshock we've picked to do, though. It is. Maybe... I don't know if it's the weirdest Bioshock, if you consider Burial at Sea, but this is Bioshock 2, Minerva's Den. <laughs> yes. So, um, I've played Bioshock before. I've done a Bioshock. I, we both have a friend who loves this series, and I think that we both come from a place where we have played the, the things that, that influence this game, whereas I guess this game brought immersive sims to the masses, the console masses. Well, I actually think if I'd played Bioshock before I'd played anything like Deus Ex or System Shock or Thief... I would think it was one of my favourite games. Yeah, we're basically hipsters. That's what we yeah. are. We are yeah. immersive sim hipsters. We've been there. We've been there, man. We were on the ground floor. We don't need your under-the-water fairy tale nonsense. We reflexively put 0451 into the first keypad. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, we, I think we both have a, um, a respect for Bioshock... Uh, but we we ha again we have a friend who's really into this series. I don't think either of us ever really got to that level where we were obsessive, uh, cult like even. But uh, I'd say I have a healthy respect for this series. When I first played Bioshock, and I was a much more insufferable person, I actually didn't like it that much mm. because it just wasn't as good as the the other things that I had played. And yeah. I didn't so much appreciate the, it being a slightly more straight shooter. But having played it again, it's, yeah, it holds up. Yeah, and I mean, this is an entirely different thing in, in itself. Yeah, it's, this, is a, uh, this is a not quite shock. It is a bit weird compared to the other Bioshock games. On more or less every level. Is that good? Is that bad? We'll find out. So um, we've mentioned immersive sims, so maybe we should talk about what an immersive sim is. James, a year ago, I asked Warren Spector this exact same question in person, and he went on for about two hours about it, and it was one of the most fascinating things I've ever heard in my entire adult life. So, you're not Warren Spector, but I expect the exact same level of commitment and dedication and... 
brevity in the answer when I ask you <laughs> what you, an immersive sim is. You've put me on the spot here. That's yes. That's a, a bit unfair because Warren he's Spector. Like, Warren Spector didn't feel on the spot. He felt like he could just go, and he did. Well, he is also one of the people who really codified what it is. Then he made his heavily involved in some of the er examples of this type of game. Um, I feel like you're giving me an excuse now why you can't explain what an immersive sim is as well as Warren Spector. Yes, I am. I'm doing exactly that. Um, so anyway, I would say that an immersive sim is a game in which you're normally in a first person's pers perspective you have an environment in which you have to accomplish a number of tasks. You're given a number of ways in which you can do that. The environment is made to feel like it's a lived-in place. It normally has a pretty strong sense of place. And the encounter design and the puzzle design is normally meant to convey a degree of sort of ambivalence to ambivalence towards you as a player. So it's meant to be as if this is a real place, not a video game level. Would you say that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, that was good. I still think Warren Spetzer's better <laughs> at defining it than you are. But then, well, of course he is. <laughs> but then, you know, he had he. I gave him two hours, and you know, yeah. this this has to be done quite sharpish, so. And also, he is a like grandee of the industry, whereas I'm just some random guy with a microphone. Yeah, Warren Spector's microphone was much nicer than our microphones as well, so. I'd hope so too. That's that video game money. Yep. Yeah, I think we both have a we both have a love for the immersive sim. It's a genre that every time something purports to be a member of it, we both get giddy and uh, jump up and down like school children. Yep. Um, I think the real question that we sort of want to answer towards the end of this, but I'm going to bring it up now so that it's in your head and also so that it's in the listener's head, is... Um, is this an immersive sim? Ooh. So there's homework for this episode, or at least uh, at least a <laughs> challenge for this episode. If we take what James has said as the definition for an immersive sim, does this game qualify? Let's find out. Let's do the facts. Bioshock 2 Minerva's Den is a DLC for the 2010 video game Bioshock 2. It was released in August of 2010 and it was developed by 2K Marin and published by 2K Games. Fun fact, this game was, well this DLC was developed in nine months from start to finish, nine months to finish this DLC. Because yeah, this is like a a fairly short regular game that just uses all the assets for this the is, existing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the lead designer for this game was uh, for this DLC. I keep calling it a game, and I will continue to call it a game because that's what it feels like. 
The lead designer for this game was Steve Gaynor, who went on to form Fulbright uh, with some other good folks, and they created Gone Home and most recently uh, Tacoma. If you have played those games and then go back and play Minerva's Den, that will feel immediately obvious. It This game just fits into that kind of... Uh, that style that Fulbright have, this feels like the first Fulbright game. However, it's not their own IP, it's Bioshock. James, how did you play Bioshock 2 Minerva's Den? I played this on PC, as almost always, and I downloaded it on Steam. I played this on my 2018 Mac Mini, which is amazing because my Mac Mini is super powered with all loads of add-ons and stuff like that and nothing ever runs on Mac, but this game does and it works amazingly on Mac and if you have a Mac and you want to play video games on it, I highly recommend getting this on Steam because it was such a joy to be able to use my Mac and play video games. I was so happy. I, I, I was just like, ooh, finally I get to play a game on this thing. It's certainly easier than um, vandalising your Mac and making it run a not quite as good version of Windows. Oh yeah, I've, I've no time for Hackintoshes. I've no time for a Hackintosh. <laughs> I also played this very, very, very briefly on PS3. Um, and it was fine. It was perfectly fine. I played very very briefly on the remastered PlayStation 4 um, collection as well, which if you have some cash to throw at and you you don't have a uh, you don't have a PC that you think can run it adequately, I would definitely get it on in that collection because you will have a lot of great games to play. Rapture. Operations Data Intelligence Network, or Rodin for short. Hey, hey, hey! And what's what's the machine called? The Thinker. The Thinker. Rodin's the Thinker. Hey, clever. <laughs> so yeah, this is Minerva's Den. What's Minerva's Den about, James? Well. Minerva's Den starts off with you being a grunting creature that's walking through a tunnel under the sea. Um, it's got a very cold open where you are a sort of grunting, heavy breathing monster. He just seems to be out for a walk, doesn't he? He's yeah. Immediately you're told you are Subject Sigma and this arsehole called Reed Wall, he, he blows up the bridge that you're having a wander about on. Imagine that, you yes. go for a walk under the sea, under the sea, and someone blows up your, your lovely your lovely stroll. That's not very nice. Uh, fortunately, you being a grunting, heavy breathing creature, you can be underwater with very little repercussions. You can be under the sea, under the sea. Yep. And it starts off with a section where what you have to do is gather the slugs of the sea. Well, you don't have to gather the slugs of the sea, but they're everywhere and you can. Yeah, I like how when when Subject Sigma wakes up, which is you, you are Subject Sigma. I am Subject Sigma. You are as well. 
I like when Sigma wakes up, he has a starfish stuck to his helmet, and he very gently yeah, kind that of... that was a nice touch. He very gently kind of peels it off, he, he's, and it's very gentle, because he peels off the starfish, it's very uh, soft, and then immediately the next thing he does is hell like this iron girder off of himself, and it's this incredible contrast of how delicate he is as a uh, as an individual and that but how powerful he is or how powerful he's supposed to be as he hails this girder off of himself he's kind of like the incredible hulk when the incredible hulk's been sensitive and then he eats the the slugs yeah i'm not sure he actually eats the slugs so i think he might just put them in his pockets right now we should full disclosure this I can't remember any of the Bioshock lore or canon and was unwilling to do any research before playing this DLC. Therefore, if we get things wrong, well, you're just going to have to live with it. So Adam is now ocean slugs to us. We don't know what I'm Adam is. Sure, I'm pretty sure that Adam comes up before as being ocean slugs i'm pretty sure that is a plot point in um bioshock one but the the bioshock part of this game is not important that's what we need to we need to stress straight away the bioshock isn't important if you've never played a bioshock you can play this game so once you've got up and wandered around and picked up some slugs uh, a man called charles porter who's moderately important i'd say He's pretty important <laughs> to the plot. <laughs> so Charles Milton Porter, who is played by Carl uh, Lumley, who is a prolific character actor. It's a good performance. And Fulbright use him again um, to great degree in Tacoma. If you just enjoy voice acting as its own art form, this is worth getting just for his performance. Because it is, it is a solo performance in many ways. Reed Wall is there. He's the antagonist of the piece. He's mainly shouting at you, though. He's mainly shouty. But Porter's... Porter as a character, and Lumley's performance, is just brilliant. He, he keeps you there every step of the way. Even at times when I was like, I, I don't know how long I can keep doing this bit or that bit, he kept me invested every time he came up. He says you can go inside now, and you go in through the airlock, and you're in the Apple store. You are basically. Uh, let's let's run down the premise though, because we need to we need to give yeah. the top line of what the premise is. Okay, so what is the premise, James? What is the what's the the overview of what this DLC is? What are we doing? So Bioshock is set in this underwater city called Rapture, which it's under you'll the know sea. If you've, under yeah, the sea, which was set up as this sort of insane objectivist experiment in the first game and went about as well as you can expect which is not very given this is a video game in which you shoot things um this is set some years after that and everything's sort of continuing to decay and you are one of the big daddies who are very bulky diving suit wearing monster men who appear in the first and second Bioshocks. They're sort of like a boss enemy and now you're one of them. 
and you are sort of on a mission. It's not really explained early on why you're coming here. You just are. It comes up later on. And you're trying to work your way into this part of Rapture called Minerva's Den, which is the computers section of Rapture, where they have all their 1950s-style big room-sized computers, including one particularly important computer called the Thinker. Rapture Operations Data Intelligence Network. Rodin, the Thinker, eh? Which is um, sort of the object of the plot. You're trying to get into the Thinker for reasons that will be explained. Yeah, you're trying to... You are Subject Sigma. You are an Alpha Series Big Daddy. So you're not the big hulking big daddies from the uh, the box art of the first game you are a little bit more nimble the almost like a proto big daddy and you are out to uh, to get the pardon me you're out to get the source code of the thinker which is Charles Milton Porter's Invention. It is a thing that runs Rapture. It's a thing that runs Rapture's day-to-day. It is why Rapture still exists years after its fall. It runs all the automated maintenance tasks. It's implied to be linked into basically every aspect of their economy. It's sort of like a proto-internet. Yeah, runs the turrets, everything. Charles Milton Porter is sort of guiding you through, helping you along. Cool. So Charles Milton Porter is immediately framed as a genius. He worked with Alan Turing in London. Well, Bletchley. He worked with Turing to crack the Enigma code. And it's fantastic how it's immediately framed that Porter wasn't really that well received. He came up against racism just as Turing came up against homophobia but yet they were both instrumental in stopping uh, the war in the Allies' conquest of World War II. And that uh, that idea that he could be this genius without the constrictions of prejudice, that's what brought him to Rapture. And you see his work here with the thinker and everything. It immediately frames him as being the smartest guy in the room and but also quite a flawed individual he's the, he's the scientist who has had his experiment taken away from him and reed while is his former partner who became obsessed with the thinker and um, thought that porter was squandering its resources yeah he Reed is a horrible incel man who falls in love with the thinker and he, he he's he's not nice. He's like a wretched kind of scrawny, like, rat-like man. Even his photo that comes up in your screen while he's talking is, like, a little bit shifty looking. Uh, so in the first part of the game, you get into this sort of big hub area. It's It feels to me like, you know, in an old cinema or a theatre, the lobby area as you go in where you bought your ticket 
and you've just gone through and there's some stairs up and there's some stairs either side it feels like that you are immediately told you need to go forward it immediately becomes apparent in this first area which is called Minerva's Den this first level you see this Fulbright DNA on on offer everything has a detail that just gives you a little bit more story whether it's a poster whether it's a bit of graffiti everything just gives you just that little bit more if you just stop and pay attention to what's going on you will you'll be rewarded with a lot more kind of lore and story content the very first thing that happens after you get in and you've defeated sort of the tutorial enemies you've got your first gun which is the iron laser we'll cover that later um, is that you are told that you can't proceed because you need the you need the gravity well plasmid to get through the door. So you go backwards to back into the lobby area and you go to the area it's told you to go to, which is the data archives, to get the gravity well plasmid, and you immediately can't get through the door because you need the lightning plasmid to short-circuit the door because the switch is broken. Yeah, this game does... It's really... It's really... Um, it's Metroid-esque, basically. You need a thing to get through. You need a key to get through to this. But then you need a key to get through to that. And so you're always chasing these keys, which open up different gameplay possibilities as well. Yep. Um, which I think could have got tiresome but the game isn't really long enough for it to outstay its welcome yeah the game's mega short so this build up at this pace is actually really fun because you always feel like you're opening something up like oh what's this oh what's this oh what's this it's really really fun um so i wouldn't say that the moment to moment gameplay is that great but the the using a new toy comes every like it comes pretty regularly and it's quite good yeah, so if we take the first half, if we say the first half is you starting the game to going through halfway through operations, or just getting to operations, should I say, what did you think about the gameplay? I quite liked the gameplay eventually, but I initially bounced off it quite hard. I enjoyed the idea of being a big hulking menace however when i came up against enemies i didn't feel like a big daddy at all i didn't feel powerful or as powerful as i should have done there should have been like five spices on me and i and i i'm ripping them to shreds and it should have been a numbers game but it wasn't it was it felt frustrating at times i didn't really like the first person shooting all that much i wish i could have paused the action to get some strategies in place so the first area you're going to, which is one of the areas I remember most, which is the robotics shop. It's mm. basically the electronics store or the Apple store for Rapture. And it's got all these electronics. It's sort of it's where you are introduced to hacking because there's a lot of turrets and automated drones that you can hack. Yay, hacking. And there's 1950s robots that were on sale mm. um, it's got a really good sense of place it feels like a shop it feels like a an upmarket electronic shop the moment to moment of exploration is fantastic 
Uh, my only immediate criticism of the game was I wish there weren't as many combat encounters so that I could just soak in the atmosphere more. Well, I think this brings up something that we both mentioned when we were playing this and talking about it, which is that in many ways it's the more Bioshocky elements, the the shooting and the emphasis on combat that I feel sort of hold this back. So you go in there to get the lightning plasmid and then that lets you get into the archives, which is another area. It's sort of like where you can store your documents. It's a bit like a bank for, what is it, documents and loan and financial information. It's the cloud. Um, And that's where you get the gravity well plasmid and that lets you proceed forward. Along the way, you will find other big daddies, and you can steal their little sisters. Yeah, yeah. So along the way, you find they get uh, released quite gradually. They are the Lancers. They're a different type of big daddy. They're more powerful, apparently. They they have a little sister, just like the regular, just like the main game. You defeat the big daddy, and you can either kill the little sister or take them on and then or stuff them in a hole I put them in a hole <laughs> um, and you can also do a little mini sort of mission a side quest where the little sister will find a specific uh, corpse which is full of Adam and they'll draw out the Adam from the corpse whilst you defend them whilst waves of enemies come at you. I never did a single one of these because I couldn't be bothered. (laughs) I did that the first time, and then I actually never felt that I was particularly under pressure for Adam, so I didn't bother again. Great if you wanted absolutely everything, but you're never really pushed to to the limits. You always have a little bit of Adam to spare. You always have enough Adam to have the combinations that you want. And also, yeah. I just wanted to get rid of the little sisters as soon as possible because they're creepy. They are quite creepy, and they're not as integrated into the story as they are in other Bioshock games. I don't know how you felt, James, but it felt like the little sisters could have been no part of this whatsoever, and everything would have been fine. Like the, This game did not need the little sisters. They were just padding. I think you could have replaced the Little Sisters with an inanimate box with Adam in and it would have been the same feeling. Each area has three Little Sisters. And if you save all of them, you get into a fight with the Big Sister, who is a recurring enemy in uh, Bioshock 2. And when that happened, I was in like the main hub area of Minerva's Den and it, it gives you time to prepare because it's going to be this big boss battle. And so I, I was laying... have things to say about this, but I'll wait for you to finish. <laughs> and so I was laying down traps. I was putting things up. And what followed was a brilliant battle. She was fighting me. I was fighting her. She was running into traps. Then splicers came in. She was fighting the splicers and I was trying to fend off the splicers. And it was just this melee, this battle royale. And... I really enjoy. This is one of the. I think this is the only combat encounter I really enjoyed in this game. I really felt quite immersed 
into the idea of being this hulking machine fighting against this other machine that's a lot more sprightly than me. It, I really enjoyed it quite a lot, but it had nothing to do with the story. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I don't feel like I got that encounter. Okay. Because if you if you attracted the um, the big sister at the same time as you finished the last part of the story um, requirement, it spawns two brutes in that area, as well as the big sister. And brutes are they're a very large splicer. They're, they're like the tanky enemy that does quite a lot of damage, but just mm. runs at you. And um, basically they stun-locked me. Oh, that's no good. And then, because when you die in Bioshock, you go back to a Vita chamber... They followed me back to the Vita chamber and corpse camped me, the three of them. And I would respawn in time for the big sister to have just stopped getting aggro for, for, on the two brutes. So I'd respawn, step out the Vita chamber, and they'd all turn around and hit me. So I just had to sort of punch the, plink them down. It sounds like you needed more firepower. That combination of events was upsetting. Shall we talk about firepower? Yes. Is it time for Rooty Tooty Point and Shooty? Rooty Tooty Point and Shooty under the sea. Rooty Tooty Point and Shooty. Yep, this is the part where we talk about the guns in this game about shooting things. It is a shoot game. We, we, yep. we forget about this, but this game is a shoot game. Yeah, we've talked almost exclusively, exclusively about the story so far, because that's the interesting bit of this game. Um, but it has guns in. It does have bangers. So I'm going to mention them, and then we're going to talk about each one in turn. Mm. So the first weapon, which is the one you start with, is the drill. It's a melee weapon, it's got fuel. I never used it. I used the drill a fair bit, but mainly as a sort of utility weapon. Because there's a plasmid that you can use that makes you charge when you use the drill. which And also there's another one that turns the drill into a bullet shield. There's a man with a drill for a hand. Have some self-respect. <laughs> uh, it's a melee weapon. It uses ammo. When it runs out of ammo, you use it to punch people with it. Yeah. It doesn't feel great. No, I get, this goes back to what I was saying before. I'm supposed to be a big daddy. I just want to rip through things. I yeah. just want to... I want one second with this drill on someone and I want to be able to just splatter them to pieces. And this... The enemies are all quite bullet spongy. Like, if you headshot an enemy, that doesn't really make as much difference as if you just hit them in the body. Yes. I'm not sure it does anything. I don't know. Again, drill... <sighs> wasn't a, it, it just reminded me that I actually wasn't as big and strong as I'm supposed to be so I didn't like to use it I think later on when you get the upgraded drill it can stun lock people so as long as you've got the drill on them they can't do anything well I mean your entire plasmid power set stun locks people so yep. you don't really need the drill for that uh, so the next thing is also not really a gun which is the hack tool. Which was the best part of this game, gameplay-wise, and I love the hack tool, and the hack tool is the best. Which shoots a, it shoots a little dart that lets you hack, like, turrets and stuff remotely. 
unlike Bioshock 1, which kind of took you out of the action to hack. This keeps you in the action. So when you use the hack tool, you're still under fire and you've got to, you've got to manage a dial that's going between different colours and you've got to land on the correct colour in order to get the hack correct. And it adds to the tension, the tension of the fight. Yeah, it can lead to some really tense moments as you're trying to hack something, but you're also trying to dodge bullets and maybe you're trying to work out where the enemies are at the same time. Yeah. I think it's much improved on previous Bioshocks. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, the first actual gun is the ion laser. It doesn't feel like you're firing a gun, just feels like you're pointing at something and seeing a health bar disappear. Yeah. I used this quite a lot because I used guns quite a lot. Um, and it's, I think it's got the most plentiful ammo. Yeah. Uh, later on you get some upgrades for it and it starts feeling actually pretty okay but it never gets good uh, the next one is the rivet gun I like the alternate ammo modes of the rivet gun the the traps yeah the rivet gun was great the rivet gun was like a, a little pew pew and uh, it did some, some nice damage I liked the rivet gun it didn't feel great Like it didn't feel like it was firing rivets it, but it, it was okay I didn't like the main fire of the rivet gun. I thought it felt a bit puny for how chunky the gun was. But the the alternate fire, which has a... It fires like a mine. But you can stick it in people and it will blow up with a delayed reaction. does quite a lot of damage. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I use the trap rivets quite a lot. Yep. So the next one, the spear gun, which I loved. I loved the spear gun. Yeah, the spear gun's great. Fire it in someone's head. Their head sticks to the wall. Yeah. You can retrieve the spear and their body falls down. That's, that, um, that, that makes you feel good. Again, the gun doesn't feel good, but the seeing what it does is, is great. Yeah. It's a great effect. Its alternate fires are... It's got spears that explode, which they're like a not very good rocket launcher. Yeah. And it's also like taser spears that I thought were quite good. Yeah, they were cool. You know, just a straight upgrade on the regular ones. Uh, the next gun was my favourite gun, which is the shotgun. The shotgun is the best. and I really love the shotgun, and that was my main gun. I love the shotgun. At some point, we're going to have to talk about video game shotguns. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is a pretty good video game shotgun. Shall we, let's, main... let's pencil that in the diary right now. From now okay. on, you will see a ranking of video game shotguns. So, number one... On video game shotguns, at the moment, is the shotgun from Bioshock 2, Minerva's Den. Which, in fairness, I think is just straight taken from Bioshock 2, the main game. Yeah, it's a great gun. It's one of the few guns that actually feels like it's doing something. Yeah, it's got quite a lot of weight to it, which most of the guns lack. One day, one day, I know I keep saying this, but one day... We will do a game that actually feels good, gunplay-wise. <laughs> we haven't yet, and but we will one day. And it's, I think it's, that's what comes from prioritising. James doesn't want to do the games <laughs> where we do nice gunplay. I, I suggest them, and he says, no, no, don't give them good gunplay. <laughs> so it's James's have, fault. Yeah. 
You've picked every game so far. I edit this, and I won't put that in. So this is James's <laughs> fault. Shh. Under um, the sea. <laughs> so the next gun is the machine gun. It's like a a fairly light mini gun, like a chain gun from Predator. Yeah, it's it's a Gatling gun basically, and it feels like a pea shooter. I quite liked it, but I never felt I had enough ammo. I just used it when I randomly scrolled to it. Okay, so here's here's a here's a confession time. So changing your weapon is on the scroll. It's also but, on the number keys. But when you use a magic mouse, obviously a Mac magic mouse, there is a scroll wheel. So if your finger glides across the top of the mouse, you will change weapon. It will act as a scroll. So for a large portion of this game, before I remapped it, I was just scrolling intermittently between every weapon and just not really knowing <laughs> what I was using. I I did combat encounters where I was using the hacking tool to fire and I was like, ah, oh, fuck, I thought this was the rivet gun. <laughs> so the final gun is the launcher, which is a grenade launcher. It's probably the most powerful. Well, it does kills most things in one or two hits. It's the one you use to spam at the enemies at the end of the game. Extra tick tick. This game has more than just the guns. It's also got the character building element, which is the plasmids and the tonics. Magic! So basically a plasmid is something that you do and a tonic is like a passive upgrade to your character. It's a buff. From how we've talked about it, I think we played this game quite differently. I don't think that we're that different in terms of playstyles for a lot of things, but we played this very differently. How did you play, James? So I spent all of my space, my sea slug points upgrading health and mana, and then used tonics that would help me be tougher so that I died less quickly so that I could play it in a sort of brawlery style of getting quite up close and shooting things with um, basically whatever I had to hand and then hitting them with the drill. Okay. <laughs> so you really, you kind of got into that big daddy... Ugh, let me put my beer down before I say this. James, you got into that big daddy fantasy. I did get into the big daddy fantasy, which is a horrible, horrible thing to say. You became a big daddy. So big daddy James using his melee. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I used all of the guns, but I never felt I had enough ammo because I was using all the guns. I, I had ammo for all the guns. Okay. So I never felt I had enough ammo to... Specialise. Yeah. And I also had, the, towards the end of the game, there's a plasmid that lets you heal and regenerate your mana when you stand in water. And I used that to be like a tank. <laughs> okay. So my main strategy was I would find some water, I'd go ahead, I'd draw all the enemies to the water, and then I'd fight them in the water where I was constantly regenerating. So you played this game as a Blastoise? Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> so you you did the Blastoise strat. Yeah. So how did you play? I played it as a turret boy. 
so I, I really liked the hacking. I found it quite fun. I played every encounter as getting turrets, hacking machines, getting them to fight for me. When I got the shotgun, I and there's a plasma... Uh, what are they called? Tonics? Tonics, yeah. There's a tonic where if you stay still for long enough, you turn invisible. It's camouflage. So what I tend to do is get my turrets to fly around and then stand in the corner with a shotgun. And <laughs> when my turrets failed me, which I would be displeased about, I'd fire a plasmid at a at the biggest and scariest splicer in the room to control them. And then I'd allow that splicer to go apeshit whilst I recovered my turret, and then I'd go back to sitting in the corner of the room. And that tends to be how I play most <laughs> immersive sims. <laughs> I like the simulation to happen around me and have... I, I like to be the guy who pokes the first domino. I don't want to be involved in the rest of it. I want to see the rest of it. And this game gave me that, which helped my enjoyment of the gameplay a lot as it progressed. So we brought it up a bit earlier, but I think this is a good place to bring it up again. I think that we had such radically different playstyles combined with the really, really good environment design is why this game is an immersive sim. Yes, I agree. This, it, this is hard because... On the one hand, I will argue for that I, I think this game would have been better without its combat encounters. But at the same time, I did actually enjoy them near the end. It was just the initial few that I didn't really care for. It starts you off and you don't have any of the powers. You don't have much health at all. And you've got the worst drill. And it starts you off fighting enemies who shoot you. And that's just not a good feeling? No. No, it didn't feel good. But once you've got a few upgrades on, under, it actually starts feeling pretty okay. Yeah, this condenses the entire the entire structure of Bioshock in terms of your power placement. It condenses it within the four-hour span of the game. So you get quite a lot quite quickly as the game progresses. And you can have a lot of fun with that if you're willing to play around with the, the plasmids and certain elements. Yeah. What I felt it lacked from other immersive sims is the, the not the non-violent option, but the option where you can sort of sneak about a bit, because I felt it was quite easy to aggro enemies. Even when I was camoed, sometimes I'd catch the ire of a random splicer. But I must say, like that was that was the best at me trying to be trying to play stealthy, like getting the turrets to do all the work and sitting in the corner and being like, hee hee, they can't see me. <laughs> Rooty tooty, point and shooty. I think this, I think the back half of the game is pretty cool because as you, as you progress in this game, it does condense the Bioshock formula quite nicely it progress it condenses rpg progression quite nicely it gives you all the toys in quite a rapid succession you always feel like moment to moment in minerva's den you feel like you're getting better and better and better and you have more player agency over your play style and in this 
back half of Minerva's Den, you get to refine that play style that you've um, that you've come to to use in the first half. And this is where the fun really begins. It, I would argue, I don't know what James thinks, I would argue that the environmental storytelling dips slightly in the operations level, but it does allow, it does give you time to play around with your skills and how you approach combat a little bit more. So you go down into this area and you've got to do two tasks again. And the first half, I think, is the better half, which is the bit that it's the bit where all the computer programmers lived or worked. It's where all the computer programmers for Rapture worked. And it's where Reed Wilde's office is. And I thought this had quite good storytelling because it was all racks of like basically server racks. And this is probably where the most non-porter audio logs are. And it feels like a lived-in place. Yeah, I'm probably talking out of my ass then, really, because I've just remembered this is where you play the video game. Yeah, there's the video game here, yeah, which is... you play Rapture's first, and possibly the world's first video game. Well, in the fiction of this game, it's definitely the world's first video game. Yes. So that's fun. and By, I, like, 10 or 20 years. And I, it fails me now. Did Porter design this? Who designed this? I think it's one of Porter's underlings, and you hear an audio log about it. Ah, yes, yeah. This um, is while is pissed off because he thinks it's wasting time because he has bought into the the ideology of Bioshock's Rapture, whereas Porter's a lot more like idealistic about computers being amazing. At this point, you've had many audio logs. The idea is that Porter is putting the memory and the identity and personality of his deceased wife, Pearl, who died during the Blitz in London. He is putting her personality into the thinker, or has done this some years ago. So the thinker is an, is an AI, but it, is, it has the personality of Pearl. You, it is kind of framed as the madness of a man who wanted desperately to see his wife again so he rebuilt his wife and another man a, a lesser man it, it's sort of framed as i suppose a lesser man who burgards that and covets a pre-made relationship that he can dominate and that he can have ownership over and this is the chapter where that kind of comes into full fruition of Wal's obsession with the thinker, Wal's desire for the thinker, and it really splits the two characters apart of Porter, who is a man with demons and with a sense of morality and a love that he wants to recapture, and Wal as someone who just wants to take, take, take and be powerful and have dominance over for dominance sake. Well, while um Earlier on in the game, he he straight up radios you to say, "Ah, oh, but the machine chose me. It chose me." There there was a conflict between them over both what they wanted to use the thinker for. You've watched uh, Person of Interest. I have. It's a similar sort of deal with that, where one of the main characters, who's called Finch, he builds this machine that is basically the twenty tens version of the thinker. It's a a very clever AI built out of server racks 
and there's another character who thinks that the machine that he built is like a god and it can be it's wall and porter's relationships with the machine are similar in that way where porter sort of sees the machine as like his child and he's obviously he's built it to replace his wife but he's very protective of it and he he sees it as his friend and companion whereas while has put it on a pedestal and he has a number of lines about the perfection of maths and how great maths is and he's seeing it as sort of a godlike figure that he's worshipping and seeing as an like object of worship rather than a th- person it boils down to being a bizarre love triangle where one man is is chasing the ghost of his wife the other man is putting all of his masculine pride and workplace ego into the domination of this of this being the second half is where Reed, while he becomes more actively antagonistic, whereas before he'd just been sort of rude to you. It turns from regular villainy into cartoon supervillainy. In Porter's office, there's a cat, there's a dead cat called Babbage, and it made me really sad. There's a lot of touch. Again, Fulbright are brilliant. They really are brilliant. If you've never played Tacoma or Gone Home, play them right now. They are, they are so good at creating an atmosphere, telling a moving story. And Minerva's Den is, is the first string in that bow. Uh, it, they really do fantastic work. Uh, Steve Gaynor is, is an intelligent, intelligent man. It's also around here where it becomes apparent that Wall had Porter framed for treason against Rapture. Treason! And um, terrible things happen to people who do treason in Rapture. Uh, It's got the same gameplay structure as the previous section. I don't think there's much worth talking about here, gameplay-wise. I would like to mention... So just before you go into the last section of the game, there's a bit where the structure has repeated and the big sister for that area gets summoned. I didn't fight her at all. Um, I just ran away, which I thought was nice that you could do that. Oh, the I fought the big sister maybe a little bit earlier, but there were so many... While sent, he activates lots of alpha series, uh, which is what you are, uh, what Subject Sigma is. He's an alpha series big daddy. While activates a lot of them to fight for him, and they and the big sister just all got into a melee and killed each other. So <laughs> I, um, I was like, okay, this is fine by me because I was invisible in a corner with my drones, and they were they were just flying around shooting things. So I was happy. Before you get to think it, you have this really cool part where forget that you're a big daddy because you've never been made to feel like you're a big daddy. Don't worry about that. You chase Wall through the sewers, basically. It feels like that the end of Blade Runner in reverse. So you, the protagonist, are chasing the, the Deckard. You're chasing him through the sewers. And he's trying to put these traps down, but they're all pathetic. And you are stronger. You are bigger than him. 
and you're just plowing through the sewer. You dominate this and dominate it, kick, kick it away. You see a silhouette running down the hallway, and it. I just loved this part. It is linear as all hell, but I loved how it made me feel. It was so tense, like it was just one thing after another. And given the game has been so open and Bioshock is usually so open, it just felt really nice to see how closed everything became and narrow. And it felt like a narrowing of the game. Like, okay, we are now on the home stretch. I really enjoyed that. It also felt to me a bit like Rapture was actually starting to fall apart around you yeah. while this was happening. It felt like which it felt yeah. like an escape, which is yeah. what the game eventually becomes. So the Thinker itself is a pretty obvious boss arena. Mm. Um, I actually thought it looked quite good. It was a sort of a mad sciencey supercomputer, a Tesla yes. coils. Yeah, it was a big computer, and you fight, uh, uh, you fight loads of um, Alpha Series big daddies. This all kind of pouring, so I hid it's in the corner. You a lot of ammo. Yeah, I hid in the corner and summoned loads of really high-powered drones at this point, and they did all the work for me, and I was really happy about it. I shot them with all the ammo that it gave gives you just before this happens, and then while turns up. And he, he looks funny because he has all this like gunk on his head, like the that's uh, like a headset and a weird bracelet thing. Um, something that uh, has always been quite funny with the two K games and their quite deliberate art style is when you see the portraits of someone and then you see their in game representation. It's it feels quite cartoonish. Which is yeah. fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. It, it can just be quite funny when you see that. So, and I shotgunned him in the head a few times, and he died. Yeah. So there's a section of the boss arena that is water. So I stood in the water and I shot at him. You blastoised him. Yeah. He's not actually that much of a a big boss fight. No, the boss he's a fight man. felt more like the this bit before where you fight all the other big daddies. I think that's kind of the point, though, isn't it? He's just a desperate man. He's got some drones, and he turns up, but he, he's no match. Like he's no match for you, Subject Sigma. Just as a he was no match for uh, Charles Milton Porter when he was around. So there's now a bit that has pretty stellar environment design. Yeah, I, this is from now on. If you like the sound of this game. Please go and play it. Please go and play it anyway, because it's really, really good. And we really... I think we both give this one a big suggestion, don't we? Yeah, yeah. But from now it's on, worthwhile. it is just spoiler territory. I mean, every episode of this podcast is... We are spoiling the entire game. Yes. But this is actually a section that is sort of worth playing through. Maybe, if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah, so if you've got to this point, you like the sound of it, cut it off. Thank you for listening. But now we're going to spoil everything. So you beat Wall. Then you go up, uh, above the arena. And this is where you can print out the code for the Thinker. The, the Thinker scans you. At this point, you've been led to believe the Thinker is an AI based, based on Pearl Porter, who was Charles Milton Porter's wife. 
who he painstakingly tried to recreate. This is not the case. The thinker scans you, scans Subject Sigma, and reveals that Subject Sigma is Charles Milton Porter. You have been playing as Charles Milton Porter this entire time. This was, I think it's alluded to that this was his punishment for being a traitor. I I guessed this when you go to his office and there's the audio log with him saying, oh, Andrew Ryan is going to come and take me and I'm going to be tried for treason. I guessed this twist. I didn't guess this twist. I guess maybe because I couldn't remember the lore of Bioshock that much. I'm, I'm unsure. But this really hit me. Like, I was, oh, my God, this is incredible. I loved it. And then from here, you take the code and you disappear off. And the guns, your gun disappears as you go down in an elevator. There is no more fighting throughout the rest of the game. And you move off into Charles Milton Porter's offices. This also had audio logs, what I liked. Incredible environment design. Yeah, this is this is proto gone home. This is absolutely brilliant. Well, it's also got like the machine is talking to you with Porter's voice, but it's clear you now know that it's not Porter, it's the thinker. So it's sort of a, a double reveal that not only is the character that you've been playing this guy you've heard all these audio logs from, but all of the radio messages you've had from Charles Milton Porter have been this sentient machine that cares quite a lot about you. You thought the thinker was Pell Porter. The thinker was actually Charles Milton Porter, who was communicating to you, who is actually Charles Milton Porter. Porter tried. He tried to have... He tried to have the thinker be his wife. He tried to rebuild He succeeded his wife. at yes. having the thinker be his wife. I'm going to go through the idea of this cold machine being his wife. And it, because it wasn't his wife, and he'd lost his wife. And in that moment, he'd come to terms with that he'd lost someone he loved. He. Sorry, I'm a bit lost to words because it is, it's heavy stuff. Because it is about grief and loss. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Again, it, yeah, it's very hard because the game is a, a shoot-man game. It's, game. it's a gunman game. But it's best served as a story about someone trying to recapture something beautiful and amazing, a relationship that he can't recapture. And it all comes to a head in this final room. And it's very emotional. It is very touching. And beyond that, you, Charles Milton Porter, who's been transformed into this monster, this hulking beast, uh, he walks off. He meets um, Tenenbaum, who's a, uh, a scientist. Um, from He's the... a char- she's a character in Bioshock 2. And Bioshock, if I remember correctly. But she just disappears through half halfway through Bioshock Two, so this is supposed to be her. Um, that what happened to her? You you escape. You escape. You escape Rapture. Charles Milton Porter and Tenenbaum escape Rapture. There's a nice touch 
in the bathosphere, which is the um, the the transport method. There's a nice touch of a uh, suitcase with a wrench and a pistol and a few pieces in, which is the um, the belongings of Jack, who's the character from the uh, from the first Bioshock. And what happens when Mil- when Charles reaches the surface? It turns out the part of the part of the process of making big daddies is sort of removing their previous personality and when you get back up you what you have got from the machine is sort of a backup of charles's personality so you are restored to being a human again and not just this like brutish robot and he goes to london and grieves for his wife but yeah, that's the game. That is the game. I think it's fair to say... Is it fair to say that we both really enjoyed this game? Yes, I think we both really enjoyed this game. And we've segued straight into Did You Like It? Yeah. Yeah. So we both really enjoyed this game. Yeah. I didn't play it at the time um, of release. I, I This is my first time playing it, as I think it was James's as well. Yeah, first time I played this specific bit of Bioshock, and I I would not have been well placed for this. Like I I, I hadn't had. Well, I think as a twenty one year old, you haven't had that many meaningful um, romantic relationships. You haven't had that many meaningful personal relationships. You're still very very young, but old as we are now, haggard with our broken hips. Um, <laughs> It does touch a nerve. It touches a nerve to, and and you can relate to it in your own personal life of what how far would you go to recreate the memory of someone that you love, and how far would you go to recreate those experiences? How would that feel to have someone take those and try to dominate them from you? What does it mean to be who you are? And it's. The, the worst part of this game is that it's a Bioshock. And that is not a knock on Bioshock, because Bioshock's fantastic. But the ideas presented in this game are better than the source material. I, I don't know whether you agree with that, James. So part of the reason I think I would have bounced off this when I was younger is... Bioshock and other immersive sims like System Shock and Deus Ex are all about quite big things. They're about big ideas. Like Bioshock 1 is about why objectivism is a garbage ideology. But it's also about choice in video games and the lack thereof. And... System Shock is about it's about AIs and it's about hive mind sci-fi concepts and Deus Ex is just conspiracies, all the conspiracies. It's about conspiracies and governments being corrupt and conspiracies. Which has no are... bearing on the modern life. <laughs> we'll get to that one day. <laughs> <laughs> but these are all like quite big high-minded concepts and that's what I thought was good when I was younger. And I didn't have as much time for things that were just about 
feelings and grief and love and that sort of thing. When when you've had a, a bit of life experience, these things start to touch you a little bit more and they start to get to you. If you haven't played a Bioshock, then they're all worthwhile playing. However, if you're strapped for time, if you've got kids, if you're trying to, you know, fit in as, as the best experiences in a short amount of time, Bioshock 2 is cheap. The Bioshock collection is, is very cheap. It's very, very cheap. I saw an offer in game the other day for 9 99 and Minerva's Den comes packaged in there. If you go to, if you launch Bioshock 2 and go to Extras, it's in there. That's how you launch uh, Minerva's Den. And it is, it is so worth your time. If you don't have time for the full Bioshock experience, hell, if you do have time for the full Bioshock experience, this is that and better, in my opinion. It is so good. <laughs> I... Um, I uh, I was lost for words at the end of it. I, I just enjoyed it so much. I really enjoyed it so much. Didn't enjoy the gunplay all that much. One day we'll play a, g a game with great guns, but and this wasn't it. But this wasn't the point. It wasn't the point for this game. Yeah, it has a bit of a weak first, I don't know, half hour. But yeah. once it gets rolling, this is unlike XCOM, unlike the Bureau, and... To an extent, unlike um, Republic Commando, I would say that this is unequivocally a good game. It's just all round good. It's got its weak points. Its its guns aren't great, but it's got a really strong story. The gameplay gets into its own later on, and it's not very long, and it's quite cheap. This game reviewed very well. It is remembered uh, amongst people who actually played it as being one of the best aspects of Bioshock. There is some... If you search it on Google, some of the first responses are some pretty glowing retrospectives of it. Before uh, Tacoma came out, Steve Gaynor played with IGN uh, segments of Minerva's Den talking about the design and everything. Um, and that's fascinating to watch. It's fascinating to watch someone who's created this be so in tuned with its design. I think he says at some point that he can, he remembers and he, he enjoys talking to level designers about levels they've created and how they can remember the floor plan of a level more than they can remember the floor plan of the house that they grew up in. <laughs> and that is a sign of a master at his craft. So it's fascinating. Like This game is fascinating, and it it reviewed well. People like it. People still talk about it as the best Bioshock. This was made by a studio that's covered that did one of the other games we've covered. Yeah, this was um, this wasn't made by the people who this wasn't made by Irrational, who made Bioshock. This was made by Two K Marin, who also made the main line Bioshock Two. They kind of exist in in modern day. Well, the first game we covered sort of did them in a little bit. Which is a shame. 
three years later, they would create or release XCOM, the Bureau, or the Bureau XCOM Declassified. Still get that Declassified wrong. XCOM, the Declassified Bureau. Declassified XCOM, the Bureau. They would release that game, and the studio would sort of flounder and not really be a thing. It isn't really a thing at the moment. It, it's a uh, it's support, it backs up development and things like that. A massive shame. When you look at this game, such a, mas- a massive shame. Um, Steve Gaynor went on to form Fulbright with some of their incredibly talented individuals. They made Gone Home, which I think we both thoroughly enjoyed. And if you haven't played it, it's absolutely fantastic. So atmospheric. But it's brilliant. a very good, it, quite short experience. Yeah. It's definitely worth going for if you're into games that want to talk to you. And Tacoma, which, um, again, absolutely incredible uh, in terms of a story experience. If you enjoyed the works of Carl Lumley as Charles Milton Porter, he's all over Tacoma and you can enjoy the, him all over again. They are a fantastic studio. I I can't say enough uh, good things about their work. If you haven't played them, then please do, because you're doing yourself a disservice. And they're not hugely time-consuming experiences, so they're something you can get done pretty quick if you're strapped for time. James, what kind of sausage is Minerva's dead? Right, so... You've got a really good sausage from a supermarket, right? Yeah. Like, you've got a really good, finest Cumberland sausage. It, it probably isn't own brand. It's probably a little bit more expensive than the, the best own brand. All right, okay, okay. I see okay. it. Right. You don't buy that. Oh, okay. Instead, you go down to a rural market town. You go to the farmer's market. Oh, okay. And you buy that same kind of sausage, but from a farmer's market. You might not get as much of it, but it's better. So what you're saying is, Bioshock Minerva's... Bioshock 2, Minerva's Den, is how we should be consuming meat in this country. Not every single day, and not in large quantities, but in better quality. Yes, from responsible, hard-working independent farms brilliant well, i like that what would you would you entertain the idea of the crab sausage the crab sausage that sounds disgusting yeah i've seen that i've just seen that a, a week or so ago <laughs> i've seen the crab sausage so i'm not suggesting it don't go don't go out of your way to find it but I've is seen this the it. nautical theme I don't think I don't think it being under the sea makes a crab sausage a palatable option at all. I think that sounds horrible. Well, darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bangers. You can contact us at BangersPod on Twitter or BangersPodcast at gmail.com. Bye.